Oh, and I forgot that we are supposed to record. So I'm going to record this to the cloud. Okay, friends, I want to thank everybody for joining us for this second installment. Uh, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to burden Judith with uh, introducing me yet again and uh, the cringe I feel where uh, whatever is supposed to be my credentials is uh, announced for everybody. My credential for purposes of, of this talk is, uh, is that I, uh, I'm really excited to teach you about the topic at hand, which is an introduction, a short introduction uh, to Torah Shabal Peh. And uh, one of the things, just a, a little bit of uh, housekeeping before we get started, uh, one of the things that uh, I want to be able to create is hopefully a clearinghouse because I'm going to be referencing a number of works tonight, a number of books in both English and Hebrew for both beginners and for uh, seasoned vets uh, that can serve as continuing information and study uh, of this particular topic. And I want it to be readily available along with the slides and materials that I've um, prepared for the evening. I want it to be available to everybody. So we're going to talk about uh, figuring out uh, a centralized venue for people to be able to access that information and to uh, to go off on their own, say ulamad, as they say. Uh, so without any further ado, let's get to the slides. Let me just admit a few more people joining in. Cool. All right. So we finished off last time. We touched a little bit upon the necessity of an oral tradition. I talked with you about what a Torah looks like and the fact that a Torah lacks uh, any meaningful punctuation uh, or translation, of course, um, any notation to really help you navigate and how it could lead uh, to confusion and uh, really can keep it a closed book unless you have some sort of a decoder. And I tried to present in the beginning that the oral tradition, which is traditionally believed to have been given over directly with the Torah, is the decodering, is the way in which all of this in front of us, this Sefer Torah, is meant to be understood and unpacked. A rather beautiful ksav, of course, that we mentioned last time. I always like to see uh, a beautiful rolled Sefer Torah. Sometimes when you roll it, they could get all bunched up. And this, uh, this one was taken care of as well. Um, so we're going to move ahead. We talked about three examples in the Torah text itself of where the Torah would be virtually incomprehensible uh, or what we do with the Torah would be incomprehensible if not for an oral tradition that came along with it. Just to review very quickly, the first was kosher slaughter, uh, that Moshe Rabbeinu alludes to a way in which animals are meant to be slaughtered in order to be made kosher, and doesn't say exactly what those rules are, and yet the rules have been transmitted to us and have been told to us in their myriad details up to this very day. The second was the difference between what might be a prohibition on all milk products. I know that that would be problematic for me because I love, uh, love my cheese and I love, uh, I love my frothed milk and my espresso in the morning. And uh, I would hope that God would allow us to have that, uh, that, little, that little gift in life. Uh, and instead, uh, instead of being a prohibition on milk, it's rather a prohibition on chilev, a prohibition on a particular kind of fat cap of a particular cut of meat. And finally, uh, there was the identity of the mysterious pre-Eitz Hadar, uh, the citrus fruit that we take on Sukkot, which is uh, not a grapefruit, not a pomelo, not a lemon, um, but a etrog that we know and love, and uh, that wouldn't have been known if not for a tradition that came directly from Sinai. So I want to get a little bit into 
little bit into some text. And I, I reproduced the text in Hebrew over here just for you to know that I'm not making it up uh, because it's a rather shocking thing for a rabbi to say. The rabbi in question is the picture over here on the side. That's Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Chayis, the Maharetz Chayis. Uh, if you learned in yeshiva at any time, the name Maharetz Chayis, Tzvi Hirsch Chayis would be familiar to you. Uh, and uh, that's because the Maharetz Chayis is no ordinary rabbi. His commentary on the Talmud make, made it into the standard Vilna edition of the Shisha Starim of, of Shas, of all of the Talmud. It's printed in the back. Uh, and he lived in Galicia in 1805 to 1855, rather short life, but he accomplished so much. Uh, in fact, if you wish to read more about this rather sui generis rabbi, I encourage you to search for the following title. You can see on the bottom over here, traditionalist and moskil. Moskil uh, was a term for enlightened, quote unquote, Jews. Uh, in the early 19th century, the beginning of Jewish emancipation allowed for Jews to engage with study of the sciences, of world literature, of the humanities that went beyond the traditional yeshiva curriculum. And the Maritz Chayas was uh, is said to have been uh, the first rabbi with a PhD. And the reason was is that the authorities then mandated that all clergy uh, attend university. And he passed with flying colors. He was educated in modern and classical languages, literature, as well as geography, history, and philosophy. And he brings that all to bear in his voluminous writings. They actually appear behind me. You can't really see it, but I, have, I happen to be lucky enough to have the collected writings of the Maharetz Chayas. And his work, the Mevo HaTalmud, an introduction to Talmud study, uh, is, for me, a watershed moment because it demystified, for me, a lot of what Gemara, what the oral tradition was supposed to be doing, what it was meant to do. And he, and he explains it and outlines it in such a brilliant and beautiful way. Uh, just to go back for a second, traditionalist and Moskil is a unique place to be. He's occupying both spheres. He's both a very traditional rabbi, as you can see. His payas is certainly longer than mine, that's for sure. Uh, but he's also somebody that is well aware of a historical sensibility, not just saying, here's what you're supposed to believe, believe it, but rather, how can I believe it? How can I understand it? And uh, interestingly enough, uh, Dr. Bruria Hutner david is the daughter of Rav Yitzchak Hutner, who is a very important uh, Haredi Rosh Yeshiva in the United States of the past uh, of of the past generation, and uh, she wrote her PhD for Salo Baron at Columbia University. Her dissertation was on uh, the Maritz Chais. So, without any further ado, here's it's a and, and it's available in full text if you need some light Shabbos reading. Um, <laughs> he says the following thing in his introduction. He says, "No, that our holy Torah is divided into two parts. We have not one." but two Torahs. One part is the written Torah, and that is the Torah that we have now in our hands that is written based on the word of God. That's the Torah scroll that I showed you at the outset of this evening. That's the Torah scroll that we raise high, or if you're uh, a, a Sephardi, that you hold high. It's much harder to do Hagba to lift the Torah because uh, their Sifrei Torah are a lot heavier. Uh, we saw an Ashkenazi Sefer Torah. And the second Torah is called, the second part is called the oral Torah. That is that God gave over at Sinai interpretations and explanations in order to understand the written Torah. And listen to what he says over here and listen well, the bolded section, because without the oral Torah, well, 
Most of the time, the matters of the written Torah would be like a closed book and incomprehensible to us. He does not mince words here. That Torah that we raise in Shul, that we revere, that we kiss, that we call our children up to for their bar and bat mitzvahs, that Torah is a closed book without the oral tradition. It is incomprehensible. Unless you think I'm making this up, I'm, this, is my free, this is my translation of it. I'll just read you in the Hebrew. It could not be understood at all. It's perhaps even stronger in the Hebrew. Similarly, we find throughout the written Torah contradictory or mutually exclusive verses without apparent resolution. It is only through these explanations given over to us in oral form that we can understand it. So that's what the Maharaj has to say about the importance of the oral tradition. And the oral tradition is far larger and takes up far more space than the, uh, than the written Torah. The written Torah is, is, is rather easy to encompass. It's 24 books. You have the five books of Moses. You have the Nevi'im Rishonim, the early prophets. You have the Nevi'im Achronim, the later prophets. And then you work your way into the Ketuvim, into the writings, and you'll find the Megillot, you'll find Tehillim, you'll find the wisdom literature of Proverbs, and that is, uh, that is, that is essentially the, the written Torah, what we call the canon. Uh, by the way, I was having a uh, conversation with somebody. I'll stop the share for a second just so I could look at y'all again. Um, I was having a conversation with somebody this Sunday with a cousin of mine. And he said, he said, Josh, have you ever heard of this thing called Apocrypha? And I said, yeah. And he had learned in, in, uh, in yeshivas, uh, not the yeshivas that I had learned in. He said, I just heard about this stuff called the Apocrypha. Do you know anything about it? I said, oh my gosh, you got to check out the Gemara in Bava Basra on Daf Yudalit Amid Bet, and you have to check out the Gemara in Sanhedrin on Daf Kuf Amid Aleph. He's like, wait, the Gemara talks about this stuff also? I'm like, yeah. The Gemara has a whole discussion in Bava Batra, which is one Talmudic tractate. It talks about who wrote the books that we consider part of our Tanakh as part of our Holy Scripture? For example, uh, I know that this is a, a little bit of an excursus, but for example, did you know that when you ask your ordinary, pers- your ordinary uh, person in Shul, you say to them, who wrote Tehillim? So the immediate response is going to be, well, it was King David that wrote Tehillim. He wrote Psalms. King David wrote Psalms. You'll say, oh, um, you know, as, <laughs> as a... a as a traditional Jew, you should know that it wasn't just King David who wrote Psalms. They might look at you, a person from a traditional background, they might look at you and say, well, that is heresy. You can't say such a thing. And you'll say, oh, yeah? The Talmud says it. The Talmud says that it was King David and 10 other people that wrote Psalms. That we have Psalms written by Moses. We have Psalms written by the sons of Korach. We have Psalms that are written by uh, the singers, the Levim in the temple. So, that only comes from the Talmud, which is talking about questions of canonicity. For example, the Talmud says in, in Tractate Sanhedrin that there are books that they thought should be part of Tanakh, but were left out. I'll give you one example. One of the books is called Sefer Ben Sirach. Maybe you've heard of the book Ben Sirah. Um, in some Christian traditions, it's part of canon. Uh, it makes it into the Holy Writ. Uh, in Judaism, it does not. It is part of the Apocrypha, what we call Sfarim Hachitzonim. And uh, it's written by a priest, an anonymous priest. It's a wisdom book. It looks like Mishli, like Proverbs a little bit. And the Talmud has discussion on Folio 100a of Tractate Sanhedrin, in which it talks about whether or not this should be included in the canon. 
My point in saying all of this is that when we say the written Torah, we're referring to a very discreet, finite, uh, easily un- understood. I could see, I could hold <laughs> the written Torah in my hands. I, I have, you know, I have on the table over here, I was learning with my brother last night, I've got a Tanakh. So here's the written Torah. When I talk about the oral tradition, so I mentioned the maximalist view, that could be what we're talking about right now. And it's all this stuff behind me also. It's all of that and far, far more. This is a rather small library, the one that I'm lucky enough to have, uh, because the oral Torah is an ever-expanding, is a constantly, it's like the universe, right? It is expanding at the edges rapidly as more questions, as more interpretations, as more contradictions are resolved. And that has been an ongoing conversation for all of Jewish history since the giving of the Torah. So the size or the relative space in which the oral tradition takes up versus the written tradition is absolutely massive. Let me show you what I mean because, believe it or not, the Talmud, who else talks about this question? Let's take a look. So one of my favorite lines in all of the Talmud, I couldn't find a picture of a mountain hanging by a hair thread, so you'll have to forgive me for uh, the metaphor of the iceberg. Um, as we all know, uh, icebergs, uh, because only the most po- one of the most popular films ever has to deal in part with an, an iceberg, an ill-fated uh, iceberg. But the iceberg has uh, a very small, relatively small part that you could see on the top. The vast majority of the iceberg is underneath. Uh, by the way, if you want to, um, I-, I told you I, I do a lot of uh, this. Um, if you haven't seen BBC's Planet Earth, uh, both one and two, uh, I, I really recommend that you should. They have images of calving icebergs, uh, meaning uh, glaciers uh, in, in, the, in the Arctic, calving, falling off into the ocean. And they also have images of what happens, the rare occurrence of when an iceberg uh, loses buoyancy and flips over. I don't know if you've ever seen something like this. Have you ever seen a video of it? But it's one of the most magnificent things. Hashem's world is, uh, the natural world is a constant source of religious inspiration and of uh, fascination. And, uh, and I thought an iceberg is an, is an apt image for this concept of mountains hanging by a thread. Now, if we had more time, and if I were a better teacher, I would ask you to consider what might we mean by saying that the Torah, the oral tradition, is described as a mountain hanging by a thread. And let me just bring that image uh, a little bit closer to you. Let's take a look at, let's take a look at, the, uh, at, at the following verses, okay? The verses appear on the bottom with the arrow going down. Vayakel Moshet Koladat Bene Israel Vayomer Alehem Elehad Varima Shetziva Adonai La Sototam. Moshe convened all of the Jewish people, the entire community, and said, These are the things that God has commanded you. Sheishet Yamim Taasem Lacha. Six days you should work. Uviyom Hashivi Yelachem Kodesh. The seventh day shall be holy. Shabbat Shabbaton Lahashem. Kol Haosem Elacha Yumat. Anyone who violates the Sabbath shall incur the penalties for violation of the Sabbath. Lo Tivaru Eish Bechom Moshvotechem Biyom Hashabbat. What are the laws of the Sabbath? Don't kindle a fire on the Sabbath. So that's it. When the Torah tells us about this institution of halacha, of Jewish life, when it tells us about the Sabbath, it basically says this really important thing, yeah, don't kindle a flame on the Sabbath. 
There's no further explanation. There's no further written justification or uh, elucidation of what that might mean, of all the other things, all the positive ways in which we might celebrate the Sabbath of Kiddush or the songs or gathering our families. Doesn't get any shrift in the written Torah. And yet, like I said, you could fill up the entire room I'm in with just later writings, writings in the last 200 years on the laws of Sabbath, on the philosophy of the Sabbath, the oral tradition on the Sabbath, even the Talmud on the Sabbath is one of the largest tractates, far dwarfs these mere three verses. In fact, the 39 chief labors that we say are forbidden on the Sabbath, uh, threshing, tanning, building, all of these things, we only learn that out from a rabbinic precept comparing the laws of Sabbath to the laws of the construction of the tabernacle. It is all oral Torah. That point led the rabbis to remark the following incredible statement. They said, Hilchot Shabbat, the laws concerning the Sabbath, they are as mountains, an entire, imagine Mount Everest, hanging by a hair thread. It's very few verses. You got them right here in front of you, but many, many halachot. They're all behind me over here. The point of this particular example is to express to us the relative weight, the relative space taken up by the oral tradition, its importance, its necessity for being able to turn Jewish life into something practicable and meaningful, how necessary it is to use and to turn those three verses into something that a community can live by for thousands of years and that can define themselves and can continue to learn about. That is the perfect example of the mountain hanging by a hair thread. It's like the top of the iceberg is the scripture and what's lurking underneath is all the things that went along with that scripture, continue to go along with that scripture, that oral tradition that helps us understand it. That's, that's the example uh, that I thought most aptly uh, expresses this dichotomy between the written and the oral traditions. And that's how important the oral tradition is. Let's continue. So uh, this uh, individual, this man in front of us, is Rabbi Samson uh, Rafal Hirsch. Um, Rabbi Shimshon, I had a friend who uh, uh, had a friend in the city who comes from the German Jewish community told me that that's actually a mistake. Rabbi Samson, it's really Rabbi Samson Ben Harav Rafal Hirsch. His father was Rafal. I had only heard him called Rabbi Samson Rafal Hirsch, uh, but this is a, a rather beautiful, uh, unconventional picture of him that I found online. Uh, who is he? Rabbi Samson Rafal Hirsch was uh, born in 1808, uh, lived to 1888, really the cusp of uh, modernity as we know it, uh, is the intellectual founder of the Torah in Derech Eretz School. The Torah in Derech Eretz School, if you are unfamiliar with it, is worthy of a series in its own right. It was the response to a changing world in which traditional Jewry began to be assailed by modern concepts, modern sensibilities, modern ideologies, criticism, uh, the birth of uh, Bible criticism, both higher and lower criticism, which is also something that's worthy of its own series. Maybe we could get to at some point uh, in these CCE classes, uh, what might be a response uh, or a way to assimilate that kind of uh, forbidden knowledge. Um, The response to this was to create a a, a syncretistic approach in which 
and I, I don't claim or arrogate to be any sort of an expert on Torah and Derech Eretz, but I would say a close corollary, and I'm speaking with bold strokes, is Torah Umada. Uh, modern orthodoxy, as we know it, is maybe uh, a close cousin of Torah and Derech Eretz. It's its own ideology in which a Jew can be both uh, deeply traditional and can also uh, incorporate modern uh, life and sensibility into that and have them walk hand in hand. Rabbi Hirsch's major works are the 19 letters, which has been translated into English. Uh, they take the form of letters from, of Rabbi Hirsch wrote anonymously actually, or under pseudonym, uh, written to a young Jew to explicate the foundations of Judaism and to deal with the major questions that traditional Judaism uh, might have to deal with. Choreb, which is a systematic elucidation of the mitzvot and presentation of uh, Judaism's thought and ideals. And also, of course, Rabbi Hirsch's famous commentary on the Pentateuch, on the Chumash. Uh, Rabbi Hirsch utilized a very unique uh, philological sensibility uh, using shorashim, the roots of Hebrew words, um, some pretty unbelievable insights. And there is a beautiful translation uh, by Dr. Isidore Grunfeld, I believe, one of his successors uh, that is published by Feldheim Books. Uh, it is a modern classic. Rabbi Hirsch also took up the cudgels of the discussion of the relationship between Torah the written Torah and the oral tradition. And I thought that these words are too good not to share with you uh, because look how strong he is, much like the Maharetz Chayas. Uh, Rabbi Hirsch also has some pretty forceful and some pretty shocking things to say about the relationship between the written and the oral tradition. Listen to what he says. After all, it was not out of this book. And this book refers to the Torah, the written Torah, that the law was to have been acquired. We were not supposed to learn the laws from the Torah. Bolded. This book was to be given into the hands of those who were already well informed in the law, simply as a means of retaining and reviving ever afresh this knowledge which had been entrusted to their memories. Like we saw before, I could give you the written Torah and I could say pre eats Hadar, a citrus fruit, but you wouldn't know what to do with that information were you not to have an oral tradition explaining it. This book was to be given to those who already knew what the law was in an oral sense. And that includes us nowadays. The written Torah is to the orally transmitted Torah like short notes on a full and extensive lecture on any scientific subject. For the student who has heard the whole lecture, short notes are quite sufficient to bring back afresh to his or her mind at any time the whole subject of the lecture. Now emboldened again for those who have not heard the lecture from the master, such notes would be completely useless. Now, I keep on saying this word. I keep on saying this thing, the oral tradition. And one of the things we're going to be getting to, that we're going to be approaching, uh, probably going to be in the next installment of this lecture series, and uh, I want to pause for a second and say that I know that our poster uh, or our information may be uh, a little bit confusing. I didn't write on it that it was supposed to be on subsequent Wednesdays, um, but we will, God willing, we should live and be well, we will meet next Wednesday as well, and we will send out hopefully a communication from the CCE. But one of the things that we're going to touch upon is how did this all go from being a principally oral tradition 
to one that is written down in all these books into the Jewish library. That itself is a rather fascinating process, a rather fraught process, um, a subversive process that I'm going to be really excited to jump into with you. So I, I don't want to um, elide the fact that when we say oral tradition, we recognize that it's no longer uh, completely oral. It is most of it written down uh, in the Talmud, in the codes, and in the commentaries throughout the generations. So that's an important point. I do see that a question has come into the chat, and uh, maybe I'll just read it now, and we'll see if we could address it now or later. What was the process by which all of the Jewish people accepted the rabbi's interpretations? Ooh, um, <laughs> um, one of my favorite topics. How did this, uh, right, so you say it's the oral tradition. How did we come to, like, who agreed to this, right? Like, I get... <laughs> I get, maybe this is what lies at the heart of the question. I get that there was a theophany, a revelation at Sinai in which we received the written Torah. That I could wrap my head around. But like, how did the Talmud become authoritative? How did the Shulchan Aruch, how did the Code of Jewish Law written by Rabbi Joseph Caro in the 16th century in Tzifat, in Tzifat, Israel, how did that become accepted? How did the, like, who decided that? Why did these books become part of the, the modern canon? So that's a really, really cool topic. It's, it's actually, the term for it is called Kabbalah's Harabim, acceptance of the masses, um, all kinds of amazing uh, theological uh, approaches and how that might be. But I'm, gonna, I'm going to be mitzamsim. I'm going to constrict myself for now. Um, hopefully you could sense my excitement to discuss this particular thing. And, uh, and, and I want people to keep me honest. If I don't touch upon it in subsequent installments of this lecture, I want you to make sure that I do. Uh, let's go back to sharing. Uh, so we saw Rev Hirsch, and uh, let's, uh, let's take a look at, uh, at the process by which this goes. So this is not mine. I did not make this amazing, uh, rather busy timeline, uh, but this is freely available online at www.odieda.com. I use this uh, with my students uh, in high school for a long time. And then when I started teaching sixth grade for the first time, I brought this on the very first day and the students looked at me and they were sort of like, Rabbi Rosenfeld, what is, this is a mess. Like we, we can't understand anything here. This is so busy. Um, so I was quickly disabused of using this as a, an early tool, but hopefully together we can uh, parse the information here. And this is really cool to go through. You can spend hours on this, but let me give you a sense of how the oral tradition and the written tradition develop uh, both in tandem and how the oral tradition runs with it. So we're going to spend a couple of minutes on this uh, document and then we're going to zoom in. So we have over here the timeline of all of Jewish and uh, uh, really world history that went along with the Jewish history. We have the flood uh, in biblical chronology is uh, 2,105 years before the common era. Let's move along the Exodus, the judges, the kings, the prophets. So we're going through all of Tanakh over here, all of Holy Scripture, and we get to the first and important aspect of the Knesset Hagedola. Anshe Knesset Hagedola were 120 individuals that lived after the time of the kings and the prophets into the second temple period. And the Talmud tells us that amongst them, not all of them, amongst them were people who had received prophecy. Uh, probably the most famous member of the Anshe Knesset Hagedola. Anybody want to essay a guess who is probably the best known member of the Anshe Knesset Hagedola? I would aver. Anybody have any suggestions? Mordechai from the Purim story. 
was a member of the Anshe Knesset HaGedola. Um, there's uh, other people who we may be familiar with, Chagai Scharyam Melachi, the last prophets of Jewish history. Uh, Melachi is the last prophet of Jewish history. They're said, or at least in scripture, uh, they're said to be members of the Anshe Knesset HaGedola. Uh, the Anshe Knesset HaGedola are responsible for the major aspects of our liturgy. Uh, they, uh, they solidified that Hanukkah and that Purim are holidays and part of our calendar. Uh, and Anshe Knesset HaGedola are seen as the beginning of the committing of the oral tradition into a written uh, thing that you could take with you. And, uh, and they saw the necessity of something like this having to start to be committed to writing. After them was a period called the Zugot. The Zugot was a period of dual leadership, a temporal leader uh, called the Nasi, and as well as a spiritual leader or a, uh, a leader in adjudicating Jewish law who is called the Rosh of Betin or the Rosh HaSanhedrin. Then we have the beginning of the oral tradition proper. And here's year one of the Common Era. Can everybody see this chart? Is it, is it big enough for us? Because we're going to zoom in in a moment. But here is the period of the Tanaim. The Tanaim is roughly, and again, I'm no academic, so some of the dates here are, are off, uh, or I may, you know, don't hold me to it exactly. But the Tanaim are roughly from year one to the year 210 CE. What happens in the year 210 CE, traditionally we know and uh, and 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 accept that Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi, uh, both the temporal and spiritual leader of the Jewish people, took all of these disparate written traditions that people had on their own, and he compiled that into what we now call the Mishnah. The Mishnah was the very first uh, official compendium of the written Torah. Now, the reasons behind that, or why he was allowed to do it, uh, is what we're going to talk about probably in the next session. But that Mishnah is very concise. It is the short notes that we were talking about. And as time went on, and as the people moved further away from the destruction of the temple, which is roughly over here in 70 CE, the destruction of the second temple and the beginning of the diaspora, so it started to become forgotten. Uh, Questions arose about certain things in the Mishnah. For example, the very first Mishnah in the in, in, in Shas, in the entire rabbinic compendium, asks a question of when we say Shema at night and when we say Shema in the morning. And that raises questions and different opinions start to arise. So an entire literature started to develop explaining, elucidating, and understanding what the halacha, what the law was in the Mishnah. And the people that were engaged in that work were called the Amoraim. The Amorayim operated over a period of roughly seven generations into the time of Rabbanan Savorai. Rabbanan Savorai, or what academics uh, will call the Stamaic, uh, Stamaitic uh, layer in the Gemara. The Gemara can be seen almost like an archaeologist, that there's different layers. There's the Tanaitic, the Mishnaic layer. Then there's the early Amoraic layer, a later Amoraic layer, an anonymous Stamaitic layer that comes later. The Savaraim end with the closing of the Talmud. Traditionally, it is assumed that two rabbis spearheaded that process. Their names were Ravina and Rav Ashi, and then began the period of the Geonim. 
and the Geonim leads up to the common era. I know that this is a lot of information, so all I really want to hone in on is how the process of the initial writing works. I want to quote to you, and I believe, by the way, that I skipped a slide, and I would be very, very embarrassed uh, if I did so. I'm going to stop the share for a second, and I know that I've just dumped a tremendous amount of information on you, um, but I hope that I did not uh, skip the slide because we may have missed a very important Mishnah. And here we go. And, I, and, and not just that, but an important joke that I wanted to share with you, even more important than the Mishnah. Uh, yeah, that timeline is really, somebody just wrote in the, ta- in the chat. Yeah, that timeline is, uh, I, to me, just to see it like that is great. Oh, so here is my really whimsical slide. Uh, why did I show you that timeline? Um, you may ask when we talk about this tradition. I'm going to do my best to Theodore Baikel. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I know. You will know also. That's a little bit different than the play. We don't, we do know. In, in Fiddler on the Roof, he doesn't know. Uh, how did this tradition get started? Well, the very first Mishnah in Pirkei Avos tells us the beginnings of this tradition. It says, and I'm going to read this in Hebrew because these are such important words. And you can follow along in the English. Moshe Kibel Torah Misinai. Moses received the Torah at Sinai, Uma Sarali Yehoshua, and he transmitted it to his faithful student, to Yehoshua. Yehoshua transferred that Torah knowledge to the Zikanim. He gave it to the elders, the 70 elders, Uzikanim Linevim. And those elders, they gave it over to the prophets. And the prophets, Unevim Masarua Laanshek Nesetagedola. I was wondering when I said the timeline, I'm like, I'm supposed to have told them about the Anshei Knesset Agadola before I showed it to them on the timeline. So now you see what I was referring to. Anshei Knesset Agadola got it from the prophets. Haim Amrush Loshadvarim. And by the way, they had three maxims. Heve metunim bedin, be patient when you're adjudicating and administering justice. Hemidu tamidim harbe, cultivate many students. Vasusiag the Torah and guard this Torah well. And this is the beginning or the elucidation of the oral tradition. And lest you think that this is some far out thing, we can't wrap our head. I mean, what's the connection between me and the giving of the Torah at Sinai? Well, it's not so far off. Can everybody see the screen I just shared with you right now? Because check this out. It's not so far away. Here is, I don't know who this rabbi is, Rabbi David Ben-Dori. Maybe there's somebody here who's familiar but he did this amazing thing, and this is used actually in a lot of uh, Eishat Torah seminars. Uh, not always uh, my cup of tea, uh, but certainly very striking, uh, this particular element. Um, and it goes like this, and you could feel free to look at this and peruse it on your own, but it shows the chain of transmission from one person to another. It is only 130 generations. That goes from Moses all the way down, right? So we have Tanaim. Amoraim, Savoraim, Geonim, maybe some of these names you've heard. And then we start to go down in history all the way to the Rishonim. We have Rashi, we have the Rambam, we have the Maharil, who's responsible for many, many, many of the traditions of Ashkenazic Jewry. Uh, if you're a Yeki or if you have Ashkenazic traditions, they're probably already written by Rabbi Yaakov Malayan in 1427 and come to us from there. Uh, all of these individuals are worthy of their own uh, shiurim on their own. The Achronim, we have Rabbi Moshe Kramer, the father of Rabbi Yaakov Chassid, the Vilna Gaon. 
all the way, sorry, <laughs> Ravilial Kramer is over here a couple of uh, years later, all the way down to contemporary rabbis. And I could locate myself just to show you how this works. So Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik, for example, Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik, uh, his son was Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik. Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik had a son, Rabbi Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, known as the Rav in Boston and in YU. Rabbi Yosef Dov Soloveitchik had a student, Rabbi Herschel Schechter, who is my rabbi in YU. And it's a very moving thing to even say, uh, to feel like you're a part of something like this. Uh, and now we get to learn together and we find ourselves a part of this chain. And it's not so far back. And everybody, and this is just one chain of transmission. If you are of Sephardic extraction, you might have a very different chain uh, that goes all the way through. The point is, is that this notion, this notion of a tradition of being a link in a chain, sorry that I'm skipping through this, right? Being a link in a chain that starts with Moshe receiving the Torah at Sinai is not such a far out concept. It is a concept that we could trace ourselves going through all of these years. So to go back up to a commentary of that first thing, let me see if I could bring us back uh, to a full page. Actually, it's okay. We could read this over here. And the men of the great assembly, Rabbi Yonah of Gerona, Rabbi Yonah Garandi comments on this, and we'll probably only be able to do one more slide after this. But in his commentary to that very first Mishnah says the following, the men of the great assembly over here, those Anshe Knesset Hagidola, they transmitted it to the men of their generation. And the sages transmitted it to their children after them in each and every generation. And this transmission was from one sage to another until all the sages of Israel gathered and a suggestion was given from their mouths to write down the oral Torah, first committed, as we said, to writing in the period of the Tanaim compiled at the end in 210 with the Mishnah. And so they wrote and sealed the Talmud, Rabbanan Savorai, in the year 700 CE, roughly. And afterwards, nothing was added to it and nothing was taken away from it. And that generation also transmitted it to the Geonim, who were the leaders of the Jewish community when it was concentrated in Babylonia and what is now modern day Iraq and Iran. And that transmission was from one Gaon to another, one rabbi to another. Rabbi Yonah Garandi says in the 13th century until this very day, until December 8th, 2021. That is the tradition. Now, you might be familiar with this Norman Rockwell painting because you might say to yourself, well, if I have an oral tradition and people are just transmitting words from one to another, who's to say that mistakes aren't going to crop into the picture? Who's to say that in the path from, well, Lahavdil, from one rabbi to the next, that you're not going to end up with a situation like this in the end? I have a pet peeve that people say that Norman Rockwell isn't an artist, but rather an illustrator. Such things have, such slander has been uttered. Uh, and uh, it's very important to point out that Norman Rockwell uh, was an artist of the, highest, uh, of the highest caliber, at least in my estimation, and presaged the movement of hyperrealism that we find at the cutting edge of modern art today. Uh, but you didn't come here for an art lecture. Um, but uh, I love that painting because I think it illustrates what happens when information is transmitted orally. And what we're really going to have to touch upon next week is what is the integrity of this tradition? What ensures that mistakes don't creep into it? And um, I'll tell you about a little game I played in my class uh, with my sixth graders when I explained this concept to them. I took uh, the first row, I divided them into five rows, and I took the first group of students. I said, uh, hi there, Anshe Knesset Hagedola. 
I said, I have three halachot for you. I said, are you ready? I said, yeah. One of them took out like uh, their notebook. I said, get that away from, uh, from here. We don't write anything down over here. Here's the three halachot. I told them three very basic, generic uh, halachot. And I said, okay, you guys feel like you have it? They said, yeah, yeah, we're good. I said, okay, I want you to, um, to get this over to the next group. I called the next group. I said, I'm out, I'm done. Um, and by the way, if you guys can give these back to me at the end of the class in the exact same form that I gave it to you, you know, everybody gets ice cream from me. And they're like, really? I'm like, yeah, but it's going to get shorter and shorter the time frame with which to transmit it as you get further and further away from the source. And they went ahead and they, they tried valiantly, each group to the next, and they didn't quite transmit those three laws to me faithfully in the end. Ice cream will have to wait for another time. But the point of the exercise is to give them a small taste of what it means to transmit an oral tradition. Now, I'll leave you with the following thought. Let's say it's not just three halachot. And this is actually not my original. This comes from Rabbi Lawrence Kellerman, uh, also uh, part of that Eish Torah uh, school, but um, I think a really uh, apt exercise. It's not three halachot, it's 3,000 halachot. And you don't have five minutes to remember it and to teach it, but you have five lifetimes, five generations. And you're not going to win ice cream at the end, but you're going to ensure the continuation of your own people and your own tradition and your own culture. And if you don't, you know that it will be lost. And you know that this is the most important mitzvah. The most important commandment is to study this well and to teach your children well, as, uh, as a certain uh, band once said, teach your children well. If I told you that you had a lifetime to do this, if I told you that everything, what your legacy is, rests on transmitting it faithfully, do you think you might be able to commit that transmission, that you might be able to give that over to the next generation? Well, that's a question we're going to have to answer in the next lecture. Uh, Lecture is a bad word. In the next talk. And uh, I'm so excited to be able to do it together with you. And of course, reach out to me uh, at my school email. And uh, I'd be very happy to have a Torah-related conversation uh, rather than some of the other ones I've been having. (laughs) But uh, I really want to thank you all so, so much for joining me, for learning together with me.